I had a very unique experience this past week. I was stabbed by a piece of rice. I'm serious. We had dinner, and I was helping to put some things away, and my wife likes to use the wild blend rice, and so we had it in a, in a bag that was resealable, like a Ziploc-type bag, and I was closing it, and I noticed this little bump where it didn't quite close, so I took my thumb and my finger and I pressed, and the bump was one of those pieces of rice on both sides sticking out through the bag. It literally stabbed deep into my thumb. I started bleeding profusely and got to share the story that I was stabbed by a piece of rice. My children thought I was nuts. Daddy, rice can't stab you. Well, this rice did. It stabbed me. Every human knows what it is to be human. You say, Pastor, that's kind of a profound, simple statement. And what you mean by that is, Pastor, that's stupid. Why do you need to say that? What I mean by that statement is that we all have a story. And our story... Your story and mine includes ups and downs, successes and failures, joys and griefs, wins and losses. I may not, and I don't, experience everything that you experience. And you don't experience everything I experience. But we all have a story. And often, what connects us as humans is the commonalities of our stories. We may have some different experiences, but we all have common experiences. We all have those experiences of being human that we hold in common. And though our, our specific experiences may be a little different, our life story may be a little different, throughout our life story are weaved these commonalities that connect us. Everyone's life is a series of ups and downs Kind of like a roller coaster. You, you don't find among people one person whose trajectory in life is always up. Nor do you find someone whose trajectory is always down, though some of us feel that way at times. It's a series of ebb and flow of ups and downs, and it's those commonalities that connects us as I have had different experiences, especially the hard ones. I've had friends in ministry tell me since I'm in ministry that 
those experiences will serve to make me a more empathetic pastor, one who is able to relate to and sympathize with people better. And that's true. I've found that to be true in my experience. But the reality is that's not true only for pastors. It's true for all people. Those stories that we have, yes, with some unique experiences to us, but with commonalities that connect us to one another, enable us to sympathize with and encourage one another better. The message today comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 41 to 56. And here, we have two very familiar accounts that are intertwined. As far as we know, the man in one part of the account doesn't know the woman in the other part of the account. And yet their stories intertwine because of commonality. And what's interesting is though we will, we by pastors, Bible teachers, though we will always reference both stories, we often split them up in preaching. Okay, we'll read the account in a moment. We're talking about Jairus and the eventual death of his daughter and whose story intertwines with his. An unnamed woman with the bleeding disorder, right? How many times have we heard preaching that actually combines their stories in a message? Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, pastor, pastors do that, right? Because they don't want to keep us here for three hours. I don't intend to, but I think we can learn by looking at their accounts together, seeing how the stories intertwine, and picking out some of the commonalities between their stories. We find two people, two families with very different stories, yet it's the commonalities in their stories that connect them, much like we find is true for us. And as we look at their stories, we too can connect with them, even though we're separated by 2,000 years. We're separated by background and national differences were separated by cultural and societal differences and yet there are commonalities that can connect us with their story from 2000 years ago and as we do it will help us grow it will help us grow in empathy for others but it will also encourage us as we continue to live out our own stories. Because no matter where you're at in life, your story is still being written. It's not done yet. It's still going on. But let's read the account, beginning in Luke 8, in verse number 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, 
And he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had one only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman, having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. And while he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished. But he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. We read their stories, and they're very different, aren't they? From this man Jairus and the experience of his family to this woman. They're very different stories, and yet their stories are interweaved extricably. You cannot tell the story of one without the other. And through the interweaving of these stories, I find at least three commonalities that we can learn from that will help us grow in our empathy for one another as well as encourage us ourselves. Would you notice the first commonality between these two? And it's simply this, desperation. You find two people, very different, very different in their background, very different in their social standing, very different and yet similar because they're both desperate. Verses 41 and 42 introduce us to Jairus. What do we know about Jairus? We, we learn from his story that he's the ruler of the synagogue there. 
that means that Jairus has a position of authority. He is someone who is looked up to in the community. As the ruler of the synagogue, it was Jairus's charge to uh, conduct the services, to select participants for the service, to maintain order within the synagogue and within the services. And so Jairus is someone that people of the community knew. He was someone that was looked up to. If, if we could say it this way, Jairus was among the religious leaders of his community. And we all know at this point in his ministry how the religious leaders, for the most part, are responding to Jesus. We also learn of Jairus that he is the father of an only child. A daughter who was sick and dying. And he's helpless. Her illness, her injury, whatever the case is, appears to be sudden. A serious situation that Jairus nor his wife were prepared for. We don't have a lot of details, but that seems to be the case as you just look at the story. It's not something that has gone on for a long period of time. It's not something that that they've seen coming, that they're preparing for. It's something that is very sudden. It's something that is a, a, a sudden interruption in their life. It's something that, that they're, they're wondering, what can we do? What, what can be done? I'm sure at some point, perhaps, they've called for a doctor, and a doctor has, has examined their daughter and, and has told them there's nothing that we can do. Verse 43 then transitions to this unnamed woman. And as we look at her, we find that she has been a chronic bleeder for 12 years. This is some type of menstrual disorder that this woman is experiencing. She, she is bleeding consistently, constantly, and this has caused some trouble in her life. Luke informs us that she is financially ruined. She has spent all her living, every resource that she has on different physicians, different treatment options, trying to solve this disorder and has accomplished nothing. In fact, in Mark's gospel, we learn that she's only gotten worse. Because of this, in the culture and her society, she is ceremonially unclean. What does that mean? Well, that means this. If, and we don't know, but if she was married and had children, she had no more interaction with her husband or her children for 12 years. If she's single, she has no prospects. There's no option for meeting someone or, or being promised to someone as families often arranged marriage in that day. There's, there's no promise or prospect of someone. There are other, what we might call, social distancing requirements very similar to that of a leper 
for 12 years, that's been this woman's story. Both these individuals, though very different stories, were desperate. However, there was a commonality even in their desperation. Do you see it in the text? There's a commonality even in their desperation. And that's the delay. Think about it. For 12 years, this woman has had a bleeding disorder. For 12 years, she has done everything possible in and of herself to deal with this disorder. There's been a 12-year delay from the time that the disorder began until this time. You say, Pastor, you said Jairus' situation, the, the illness of his daughter appears to be sudden, something they were unprepared for. What's the delay in his story? Well, it's the delay of this woman showing up and Jesus stopping and in dealing with her situation. And don't miss what happens during the delay. So often when we hear preaching and teaching, we're encouraged that we need to remember that a delay is not a denial. Sometimes when there's a pause... And it's not a pause of life. You're going through a situation and it continues to be bad and it continues to be tragic. It's not a pause for us in life, but it seems to be a pause from God. We're seeking God. We're praying to God. We're doing all the things we know to do. We're doing everything within our power to help the situation, to, to move forward, to, to find healing, to find help. And we, we're not getting anywhere, but... It doesn't seem like God's doing anything either. And we're encouraged delays are not denials. God is not necessarily telling you no. We are encouraged that in delays, God is still working. While you're waiting, God is still working. And that, that helps us, it encourages us. But what we often don't hear, because it's not so encouraging, is that during the delay things can get worse. Didn't that happen for both of them? For the woman experiencing a 12-year delay, uh, this chronic bleeding disorder, how did things get worse for her? She's financially ruined. She spent every penny she has If you've ever been through any type of a lengthy ordeal that is bad, you know that day by day as that ordeal continues, it weighs on you more and more. It burdens you more and more. And that, I'm sure that that was true for this woman. Every day that came and went, every week, every month, every year, she hoped for healing. She hoped for a cure. She hoped this treatment would work, that this doctor would have an answer, that that treatment would work. And every time her hopes were raised, they were dashed again. 
it weighed on her more and more and more. How did things get worse for Jairus? <laughs> His daughter died. And so, yes, it's true, delays are not denials. Yes, it's true that while you're waiting, God is working, but you also need to recognize that sometimes in the delay, things can get worse. And so, is all working together increase, listen, they increase the desperation. Wouldn't you agree? This woman becomes more and more desperate with every passing day, week, month, year. Jairus becomes more desperate with every second because in his mind, his daughter's sickness is so severe, it's so sudden, nothing can be done. He knows she's at home dying every second counts. And in the delay, things only get worse, but... Listen to this and think about it. With the increase of desperation is also the magnifying of the deliverance. Do you see this? With the increase in the desperation is also a magnification of the deliverance. Now, we don't like to jump to the end of the story from the beginning, but, but think about it. The healing of this woman after 12 years, when she's seen every doctor, she's tried every treatment, when she's spent every penny, the healing, the deliverance is that much more amazing, isn't it? Jairus' daughter, who is sick, could Jesus show up and heal her? Yes. Did Jesus have to show up to heal her? No. Go back to Luke 7, the centurion who said, don't come to my house. I know you can still heal my servant. And he did. Jesus didn't have to go. He could have healed Jairus' daughter the moment Jairus showed up. But he didn't. And she died. And his desperation only increased. But friends, when he worked, the deliverance was that much greater. For you and I, as we think about our stories, the reasons for def desperation are often varied and complex. They can be physical. It can be health-related issues that you face or have faced in your life that, that bring desperation. It can be relational. It can be some broken relationship or, or a relationship that is near the breaking point. A relationship that's on the rocks. It, it might be between uh, spouses. It might be between parents and children or, or siblings. And, and that relationship is fractured and you feel it. You feel the weight of it day by day by day. It can be financial. You can be in a situation where you just don't know it often doesn't get to this point for us in our culture but it could get to the point where you don't know where the next meal is going to come from you don't know how you're going to pay that bill when it comes 
you know you need to get that medication you know you need to see that doctor and, and you just you're concerned about where the money is going to come from to pay the bill when it's time to pay the bill it can be emotional the 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 addition of of problems and difficulties and challenges that that build up and add one upon the other and you just you feel though you put on the smile though you show up looking your best you feel in your heart that you are near a breaking point you're desperate if you're human you've experienced difficulties in these areas at different points in your life and though your specific story may differ from someone else's these difficulties that we hold in common often lead us to desperation and additionally we may be more prone to desperation in a particular area in other words for you for you it might be the the physical that often is more hurtful is often more um problematic whereas you can be on the rocks financially and it doesn't really bother you but it could be reversed you could be the person you really struggle when you're financially not very stable but when you're physically hurting and all that you just keep going it doesn't phase you a whole lot but we all understand what it is to be desperate how do you respond when you face those things you struggle with? When you're facing those situations that often lead you to desperation, how do you respond? We all who are human are driven to desperation. Our stories may be different from each other, but that commonality exists. How do you respond? The individuals in these accounts were very different from one another. But their stories are intertwined together. You can't tell the story of one without the other. And one thing they had in common was this desperation that they felt because of their situation, because of life. But they did what each of us should do when we find ourselves there. They ran to Jesus and so we see that commonality of desperation but I want you to see two more positive commonalities that we see characteristics that we can learn and grow from when we face these types of situations number two would be humility Their stories were very different. They have very different backgrounds, but when we see them responding in desperation by running to Jesus in both of them, we see this quality of humility. Remember who Jairus was in the community. I mentioned earlier that many of the religious leaders of the Jews, they are responding to Jesus at this point antagonistically. They're opposing him. They are enemies to Jesus. But Jairus, facing this situation, comes to a realization. Jesus is who he needs. And he runs to Jesus. 
In verse number 41, the Bible tells us when he comes to Jesus, he does something incredible. The Bible says in verse number 41, he fell down at his feet. This activity indicates a position of prostration. In other words, laying down completely. Not just on knees, but all the way down. Everything is on the ground before Jesus. And often in the Word of God indicates the idea of worship. This is an activity usually reserved for someone in authority. And for the Jew, this type of position was typically reserved for God. Getting down and humbling self before God. And it's what Jairus did to Jesus. I'm not sure what started the activity, but about a year ago, our second daughter, Evelyn, who was about six at the time, and our son, Michael, who was about four at the time, were running around the house playing when suddenly... They both came to a stop. Evelyn was, was here, and Michael was a few feet behind her, and Evelyn just turned. And Michael looked Evelyn square in the face, and he said these words, Yes, your majesty, I will bow to you. And as I watched, Michael literally got all the way down and bowed to Evelyn, and I thought, wow, how'd she train him to do that? This was the way that Jairus acted when he... When he found Jesus. When he did this, he elevates Jesus far above himself. Luke goes on to say that he besought Jesus. Mark's gospel account adds an emphasis to it. He besought Jesus greatly. The language emphasizes an earnest request, a plea, even the idea of begging. Here's a man who's an authority in his community. Here's a man that on the social ladder in that community, he's near the top, but when he's in desperation and he finds Jesus, he gets on his face before Jesus and he begs Jesus to do something. These activities express the attitude of Jairus' heart. He humbled himself before Jesus. Think about how the woman came to Jesus. She doesn't make herself known. She doesn't even attempt to stop Jesus. If I can just get close enough to reach out and brush his garment, that'll be enough. But even after Jesus stops and... Um, he says, who touched me? And did you catch Luke's commentary? Uh, look there, if you would, in verse number 45. Who touched me? And then what does Luke say? When all denied. I mean, can you imagine? It's not like Jesus is holding a tribunal and one by one comes before him and says, no, I you know, like I do with my children sometimes. I call them all and I look one in the face. Did you do this? No. Did you do this? No. Jesus just asked the crowd, who touched me? And there's voices coming from the crowd. Not me, not me, not me, not me. Nobody wants to admit it. And Peter looks at Jesus like incredulously and says, Jesus, there's such a crowd here. People are like pressing against you. Everybody's touching you. 
And Jesus says, no, I'm looking for someone specific. And the woman, the Bible says, realizes she can't be hid. But how does she come to Jesus? She comes falling down before him. Like Jairus, she elevates Jesus far above herself. It's the same word, by the way, used in verse 28 of this same chapter where the demon-possessed man of Gadara showed up and fell down before Jesus. Like we saw when we looked at that, those demons, though they're the enemy of Christ, they recognize he's exalted far above them and they must pay him homage, they must pay him honor. This woman falls before Jesus recognizing how much he is above her. They both demonstrate humility. What is humility? I think we can look and we can find a lot of ideas, a lot of definitions, a lot of applications out there, but let's use the demonstration in this passage as, as a pattern. Regardless of the characteristics of their stories— the differences, one thing was true for both of them. Both of them had come to the end of themselves and their own resources. Could Jairus do anything more for his daughter? No. Could the woman do anything more for herself in the disorder that she found herself with? No. They had both come to the end of self and resources. They could not, in and of themselves, fix or change their situations. Instead, they had to depend on and submit themselves to the power and will of somebody else. Right? Jairus came and said, Jesus, come and heal my daughter. He had to yield himself to Jesus' power to do that, to his will, whether or not he even would. The woman showing up, touching the hem of his garment, it's not as if Jesus was forcibly made to heal her. She still had to submit to his power and his will. And that is a good demonstration of what humility is. Think about what Jesus said about humility. We read it earlier in the service. In Matthew 18, verse 4, Jesus said, as he called that little child to himself, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now think about it. That little child... Did that little child, as he was called to Jesus, or as she was called to Jesus, suddenly there on the spot humble himself or herself by like a, a choice of, of his or her own will? No, the reality is that children are naturally humble. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Children, especially the younger they are, notice that Jesus identifies this child as a little child. Children, especially the younger they are, naturally have to depend on someone else for everything. Noah is nine weeks old today. If my wife and I, we would never do this, so don't, don't 
think something weird. But if my wife and I were to take Noah home today and set him in the bassinet in the room and not attend to him for 24 hours, for 48 hours, for, and go on and on, what would happen? He'd die, wouldn't he? Why? He is literally dependent on mommy and daddy for everything. He can't do anything in and of himself. I mean, he can cry. He can make his presence known. But outside of that, he is dependent on mommy and daddy for everything. He's humble. As we get older, as we take on more and more to ourselves and become more and more independent, that natural humility decreases, doesn't it? We depend more on ourselves. We depend more on what we can do. We depend more on our own skills, our own resources. What is humility? Humility in the end is looking at myself and looking at God. It's coming to the end of myself and recognizing that I am dependent on him for everything. I like the way that Warren Wearsby estimated humility he said humility is not thinking less of self it is thinking of self less it makes much of god it concerns self with god's will and glory rather than his or her own inadequacy success or failure another described humility this way Humility is the absence of self in all we think, do, or say. You know when you encounter humility because you are irresistibly drawn to and awestruck by its presence. People with the quality of humility are interested in everyone else, in conversations. They want to know about you. They are not looking for ways you can be a blessing to them. They are looking for ways they can bless you. Humility is the very opposite of pride and arrogance. In a disagreement, pride is concerned with who is right. Humility is concerned with what is right. Pride and arrogance are all about self. They are always looking down at everyone else. Humility looks up. Are you humble? You say, Pastor, that's a trick question because if I say yes, I'm showing myself to not be very humble. Okay, then don't answer for yourself. Let the Holy Spirit answer for you. Are you a truly humble person? Not that it's not about thinking little of yourself. It really is thinking about yourself less. Putting your focus more on God and others as a response. It's not being so wrapped up with yourself and your resources, either the greatness of them or the lack of them, but it's recognizing that you're completely dependent on God. And then submitting myself to his power and his will. Jairus and this woman demonstrated that humility in our text. Notice number three, and we'll conclude. The third commonality that we see. They both demonstrated desperation. They both demonstrated humility. And then notice another characteristic we can grow from. They both demonstrated 
faith. Simple trust in God. In one, we see this in the text because faith was commended. We see it in the other because faith was commanded. Notice how this happens in the text. First, faith commended. Look at verse number 48 again. And he, Jesus, said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy what? Faith hath healed thee. Not thy touch. Not what you did, your activity. What healed her? Her faith in him. Mark records this. In Mark 5, 28, before she showed up, before she came and she touched, she heard Jesus was near, and in Mark 5, 28, she said, if I may but touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Before she came, that was her thought, that was her intention. If I can just touch his clothes, I'll be whole, I'll be healed. Now, there's an interesting connection with the culture here that we may miss. The ancient Middle Eastern culture viewed the power of an individual as transferring to their clothes or belongings. This is where the idea of charms or a talisman comes from. Uh, this is why even as Paul and Silas went on their missionary journey, people wanted a scrap of their clothing, a piece of their hair, or the idea of the tear in a bottle. If we have that charm, if we have talisman, it will bless us, it will prosper us. Perhaps this woman had that type of superstition mixed in. If I can touch his clothing, his clothing has power because he does, and he's wearing them, and I'll be healed. You say, Pastor, why do you bring that up? Here's why. Don't miss this. I don't think that this woman was healed because her faith was perfect. In fact, she had a very imperfect faith. She was healed not because she had a perfect faith, but because her faith, as imperfect as it was, was in the perfect person. Understand today, friends, that God isn't looking for perfect faith. He's looking for faith in you remember what Jesus said about himself for, for something that's coming at a later date? He said this, When the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? He, he didn't even say perfect faith. Will he find faith? This woman's faith was imperfect, and yet she was healed. Why? Because it's not about faith being perfect. It's about faith in the perfect person. It's not the amount of faith, but the object of faith that is important. That's what God is looking for. But then I want you to see this. As her faith was commended... His, Jairus' faith, was commanded. Now, let me ask you a question. For Jairus to come to Jesus and ask Jesus to come and heal his daughter, did Jairus have faith? Yes or no? Yes. He did. 
he wouldn't have showed up to ask Jesus to come heal his daughter if he didn't have faith. But then something happens. What happens? His daughter dies. And by the way, not only does his daughter die, but he's discouraged. Not just by her death, but by the servant who came to tell him about her death. What did the servant say? Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the master anymore. What's the servant saying? It's over. It's done. Nothing can be done now. So don't bother Jesus any further. And without any response that we know of from Jairus, Jesus hears this, and he speaks to Jairus, and he says what? Don't be afraid. What? Believe. Don't be afraid. Believe. You had faith that I could heal your daughter's sickness, have faith that I can still do something even in spite of her death. Her faith, the woman's faith, was commended. His is now commanded. We talked earlier that even in delays, things can get worse. Have you had that experience? Something's been bad. And you're waiting for things to change. You're waiting for God to work, and he's not, and things get worse. It's in those times and situations that faith is tested and stretched. It's in those times and situations that God uses it to grow our faith. To increase our faith. Pastor, you said a moment ago, it's not the amount of faith, but the object of faith. Yes, it is. That's true. And yet, as we grow, as we mature, God wants to grow our faith. He wants us to trust him more. He wants us to learn how to trust him in more situations, in more difficulties. He wants to perfect, to grow our faith. Isn't it amazing that in that situation, Jesus looked at Jairus and he said, don't be afraid. Believe. And what does the remainder of the story serve as an example of? Jesus shows up. He heals her. She gets up. She's alive. What does the rest of the story reveal? Do you think that Jairus obeyed the command? Fear not, only believe, and she shall be made whole. What does Jesus do? He shows up at his house. He commands the mourners to be quiet, and they mock Jesus. We never hear or see what Jairus is doing. But I believe with all my heart that what he was doing was believing. And Jesus raised his daughter to life. I cannot tell you what the response of faith will produce in your situation. But I believe that God responds to the faith of his people. I can't tell you how your situation will change, how it, how it will improve, how God will provide deliverance. But I believe that God responds to faith. 
believe. Whatever your story may be, trust him. And here's something I think is incredible, and we've heard this before, but let's be reminded of it again. In Jairus' situation, what would take more faith? Believing that Jesus could heal his sick daughter or believing that Jesus could raise his dead daughter? What would take more faith? Believing that he could raise her from the dead, right? What requires more faith of you and I, if I can use it in that sense? To believe that God can take a spiritually dead person regenerate us to spiritual life and give us eternal life or that God can take care of you through that health crisis through that financial problem through that emotional burden that you're carrying if we can look at it that way what really would take more faith (laughs) he can give us salvation okay so friends if you could believe him for that. How could we not believe him for the day-by-day things of this life? Have faith. As we look at these two, their stories are different, just as your story and mine is different. But their stories are intertwined forcibly because one can't be told without the other. And yet there are some commonalities between their stories that encourage us, that help us to grow in empathy for one another as we recognize we all face desperate situations in life. Yours may not be the same as mine, mine may not be the same as yours, but we all face those difficulties and situations Let's love and encourage one another through them. But we're also challenged by the humility and the faith that we see in these two. Are humility and faith a part of your story? Are they a part of your story as they should be? And if not, how does God want to grow you in those areas of your life? Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart about that and respond.